the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. It's time for a conversation about the things we share in common. Our common hopes, our common fears, our common struggles. Together, we'll wrestle with the questions that we all have about the issues that affect our lives. This is The Common Good. Now, here are your hosts, Brian Fromm and Ian Simpkins. Welcome to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. Glad you're with us on this Monday afternoon. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show, online at 1160hope.com. You can text us at 68683. That's 68683. Type in CG, followed by the comment. And uh, long uh, 4th of July weekend, but we're back at it. We're going to talk a little more about our weekends uh, later, but uh, but good times. Good good family time. Eat, eat some meat, some barbecue, 4th of July stuff, fireworks. How about you? Yep, all those things. I don't think you did any of those. Family yeah. time. You had good family time. Yeah. Yep. Not, not blowing things up. <laughs> I mean... Well, I'm not going to say it. Never mind. Never mind. I'm going to bite my tongue. It was, we hope you had a good 4th of July. It's always good to slow down, and we'll talk about it later. I was able to get away up to Wisconsin uh, with my wife's family, but uh, yeah, we're glad to be back together. And one of the things that's been going on all week long and culminated yesterday, the Women's World Cup. And uh, my my family is like, the, my, especially my daughter, my youngest, so she's 10. She plays soccer. She's obsessed with soccer. She's an Alex Morgan jersey, an Alex Morgan poster. And so this is like was in her wheelhouse. We've watched more Women's World Cup in the last couple of weeks than than uh, than most people, I would think. Did you watch at least the game yesterday, the final? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Were you into the whole tournament? You feel like, yeah, this uh-huh. is fun. Oh, yeah, right. definitely. Not, were you surprised about you normal soccer fan? Uh, I like, I mean, I like championships of any sport in general. I did play a little bit of soccer growing up, mm-hmm. so I do, I do like the sport. I think it's actually really fun to watch. Plus, I just think the story behind all of this is really fascinating. Yeah. But in general, it's it's hard for me to not be excited about any championship game in any professional sport context. Plus, they're playing their team America on Fourth of July weekend. Come on, I now. know. That, yeah, <laughs> you, you couldn't you couldn't write a better weekend. I, know. <laughs> I was. I, I, yeah, when the when the national anthem came on, I was like, oh yeah, here we go. But it was it was <laughs> what do you what do you mean by here we go? Oh, America, let's go. Oh okay. And uh, your shotgun and yeah, your Bible like and pick up truck. Watching Rocky Four, you know, you're ready to go. <laughs> oh boy. But uh, uh, yeah, the game was fascinating though. That was uh, I felt like we were dominating the whole way, but eventually you're like. Are we going to get to the dumbest thing in all of sports? And that's a game getting decided by penalty kicks. Like, is that where this is going to end? Yeah, I never liked that. I think it's the worst. Uh, that's a whole. Aside. I don't know that it's the worst, but I, it's certainly. It's like, hey, it's the NBA Finals. It's timed free throw shooting contest. <laughs> <laughs> that's a pretty good comparison, actually. <laughs> what is it? Uh Oh, no, no. Football game's tied. Bring out the field goal kickers. Here we go. Yeah, Here right. we go. So, the most celebrated member on the whole team. But uh, the team really kind of galvanized and, and caught the 
uh, the attention and the imagination, I would say, of our nation. And so to see them win now on Wednesday, they're going to have their their Canyon of Heroes parade down New York City. Like, that's going to be awesome. Uh, But there was also the fascinating thing about this team was they were really polarizing in the sense of swirling around them. Uh, were just a lot of cultural issues and a lot of change issues. And and I want to bring up two of them. Uh, the first is this, and this is a little bit of the dicey one, but I was shocked, man. I was just looking for articles last night about the game and a little inside baseball here. But you and I, uh, at least I will often go to this site called ChristianHeadlines.com. It's a, usually a pretty kind of down the middle Here's here's some stories that are going to be of interest, to, particularly to followers of Jesus. And uh, the headline uh, was this, the era of the ungrateful American with a picture of Megan Rapino. So Megan Rapino, she won basically the MVP. And it's this whole thing about Megan Rapino. She she has been known to take a knee during the national anthem or not sing the national anthem. She's the one who said, I'm not going to the White House. And, and like the main article was like, the star of the team's not patriotic enough. And I was just really kind of kind of turned off by that. This kind of like, thanks for winning us this now start acting more American seemed really like an odd take. So what was most upsetting to you about the article? So a, that it came out like, I'm sure they had it ready to go, but it was like the first article after they won the game, but it's also been dominating the coverage. And I guess, Some of you out there are going to get mad when I say this, but for me, even when it's like the taking of a knee or the not singing the national anthem or the saying hard things about our country, like that doesn't make you not patriotic. It's arguably the definition of patriotism (laughs) in in in, if you love your country, which I do. And uh, if you love your country, but you know, it's not perfect. You should be open to conversations about what would make it better and and open to conversations and debates and disagreements. It's kind of I saw one guy on Twitter. He literally wrote he was a reporter, too, of a very conservative um, website or something like that. But this wasn't just Joe fan. He said, Megan Rapino, thank you for helping America win the World Cup. Now leave and go find a country that you like more. And you're like, really? Is that what America stands for? So I think that's what bothered me is this whole like. You don't act like we think you should be acting and therefore you don't you're not patriotic. Well, maybe for someone like her, she loves the country as much as any of us. And the patriotic thing to do is to raise the spotlight on things that she thinks are wrong. And so I think that's why this article got me and the timing of it. Yeah, there's a uh, a quote from Clarence Thoreau, who is a 20th century lawyer. And he said, true patriotism hates injustice in its own land more than anywhere else. Yeah. Which you could completely disagree with her position or politics sure. or even her you know philosophy of state and country, but uh, to say that having an opinion about those things is unpatriotic. In fact, I, I know a number of veterans who said that's actually why I fought, yep. so that people had the freedom to hold these opinions, even if I completely disagree with them. Right. So to me, that's uh, unfortunate that uh, that would be like the leading story. Uh, on this website. And you might expect it at certain websites. This website, I was shocked by. Well, was really and the surprised. other thing that we don't maybe have enough time to talk about right now that needs to be talked about, though, is all sorts of the gender pay inequality that we've seen. Like, I, it's amazing to me how much less percentage wise uh, any of them are getting paid, how uh, bonkers the sales of their jerseys have been, uh, how even the scheduling of certain games has shown like a very obvious bias. Like, 
I wish I, I wish I saw more Christian publications going after some of those topics yep. because it is it is so it seems so obvious in her face. So to like choose that position, and again, you can completely disagree with her and her position and the things that she said, and she's even been kind of crude with some of those things. Yes. So I, I totally I totally get that. I would love, and maybe it's a both and. I would love to see these websites and publications saying and. We're going to address some of these gender pay gap inequalities. That's also a gospel Jesus issue that we're, you know, maybe less inclined to talk about. And I, I just think we need to. So to what you're saying, uh, the U.S. women soccer players have earned about $90,000 each in World Cup bonuses so far. If the men's team had made the same run that the women's team just made, the men would have made $550,000 per person yeah. if paid the same way. And the reason was always given the men's games more popular. They bring in greater ratings. This is what they've bargained. But now the women's team has surpassed them in popularity, in ratings, pretty significant sales. Yes. And so really there's no reason for the gender inequality. And I don't know if you saw this at the end of the game, literally the fans began chanting equal pay, equal pay, which yes. was fascinating. It was really interesting in that context too, because it was, uh, it's, it's been kind of this low grade hum, I think for a, there's a, a long right time. Now. Yes. Yeah. Right. But we, there's a number of people even on staff at our church that have been, they've been banging this drum for a while. And I'm glad at least to see it making some like mainline sway. But I don't I don't I don't know if I'm just despondent. I don't know <laughs> what difference that will make in the near future. And that's I think that's part of my frustration. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see how off of the euphoria of this win. Right. If anything, because if it doesn't change in this setting, then it's probably not going to. Yeah, no kidding. Anyway, USA, USA, way to get the win yesterday. Well, wow, that rhyme, that was like a good. <laughs> I would not, could not with the Fox. I, I should be a cheerleader. <laughs> I've, been, I've been saying it for months. Oh, but it was fun to watch that over the weekend. And we'd love your comments, too. You could do so at Facebook at the Common Good Radio Show. Also, you could text us at 68683. Coming up next, we're going to stay along the political bent. Uh, an article out of Pathos that's titled this, Christianity shouldn't be infused with politics. It is a politic. Ooh. Coming up next here on The Common Good, AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm, and we're glad that you're joining us today on this Monday afternoon. Hope your week is off to a great start. Off of Pathios from their blog, we read this article, Christianity shouldn't be infused with politics. It is a politic. You got to love a a blog that puts that out on July 3rd. (laughs) Yeah, right. That was intentional. Let me read the first paragraph for you. Christianity shouldn't be infused with politics. It is a politic. Uh, Christianity is mostly a matter of politics, politics defined by the gospel. The call to be part of the gospel is a joyful call to be adopted by an alien people to join a countercultural phenomenon, a new polis or politic called the church. Uh, And then it kind of goes from there. But the concept is is basically broadly that that Christianity does not fit into your political structure. Instead, it defines your politics and it is the lens through which you look through. Well, this sounds regular, man. This this is actually pretty. This is a if we embrace this as the church and as individuals, this is a pretty big deal. Okay, so let me just read some. I love when you do this. <laughs> I do because the article is so good, and you know, I mean, I'll kind of show my cards. Um, I really appreciate Stanley Harwas and his perspective and the stuff he's been saying, particularly in the last couple of years, but. Uh, so, so later in the article, it says the church's uh, politics involves embodying a better way to organize a better 
politics that flows from the cultivation of right desires and the habits of obedience that transform human character. Through a long, slow communal obedience to the way of Christ, we experience the deep ontological repair that results in human flourishing for all the world to see. The way Christians organize our common life together is supposed to call into question the dominant culture, not to baptize it with religious language. The real Christian political conflict isn't between left and right. Mm. It's between politics as usual and the prophetic Christian witness to the state. Too much of what passes for Christian political engagement is carried out by people who have never undergone serious Christian formation. Most Christians in America are more American than Christian. Harwas uh, often offers as a proof the fact that most of them teach their children they have a choice about whether they wish to be called Christians, but not about whether they wish to be called Americans. National identity goes all the way down, even in the church. These are people who cling to their Bibles, but don't ever read it, much less follow its teachings. Without Mm. serious formation among a peculiar people, Americans end up simply baptizing their own brand of party politics with religious language. What do you think? I think that is just a bomb right there. Boom. Because I think it's what a lot of us feel deep down right now, right? Like uh, sometimes my most discouragement, whether it be as a pastor or radio host, is, is people feeling more passionate about their right or left politics than about the gospel and that the, that the two seem separated from each other uh, or that even the politics of, uh, as we often call it, you know, left or right kind of uh, goes above their faith in Jesus. Like their faith in Jesus is defined more by their politics rather than vice versa. And I think he, I love that he brings up that we as Christians have been called to be a peculiar type of person that a peculiar group of people uh, that can't be necessarily defined by the left or the right. Like there, there is something different and that ultimately uh, the gospel and the words of Jesus are the lens through which we make all of these decisions and not, you know, the lens through the right or the left, but, but the lens of the gospel is what is how we evaluate everything. And uh, like you said, I'm just not sure that we're very good at doing that. Well, and I, you know, again, the, the we language, I think is really important because as I'm reading through this, I'm realizing some of my own embeddedness, yep, some of the stuff yep, that yep. I struggle. So this is by no means in any way, Brian and I like, you know, pointing a finger, calling, like this is a struggle for us too. And I, this is to me where it all kind of culminates. He says the church is meant to be the one community who takes seriously God's view of what it means to be human and to live faithfully. Only this kind of commitment can produce a truly Christian politics because as Harwa says in resident aliens, the church gives us interpretive skills, a truthful understanding whereby we first see the world for what it is. Mm. And I, and I wonder too, if, if he doesn't have something, something really right there about the need for us, for our Christian formation to give us interpretive skills to not just see the shouting matches on whatever news station we agree with or disagree with, right? But to actually see the deeper spiritual battle and the formation or lack thereof that is happening kind of in every context. Like, mm. Really, the, the truth is we're all being formed by something. Right. Everything's shaping us to some degree. And I and I do wonder if sometimes, you know, like we've said, the, you know, the flag and the cross have kind of started to hold hands in a way that maybe isn't all that helpful. And right. the sentiment often is if we can just get more Bible-believing Christians in seats of public office— that's the goal of Christianity. That's the goal of the church. And I, I don't think that's true. Yeah, that's in many ways what drove, you know, Jerry Falwell Sr. in those about the what were they called? The the silent majority or the <clears throat> back in the 70s and 80s and um, the moral majority. That's what it was called. 
And, uh, yeah, you know, it, it can become really discouraging. The, the good thing is most people, I, I think most people I know want to get this right. It's just hard to get it right because we're bombarded by what are we bombarded by all day long, whether it be TV or, or in, in the newspaper or whatever else it might be online. It's just the politics of our day. And so that becomes our language. And I do love that he kind of situated this around Christian formation. What are we as churches? Uh, what are we doing to help people understand what a gospel centric, Jesus centric worldview looks like so that we are uh, driven? And, and I mean, we got to put the rubber to the road here, right? Like whether it be your stances on abortion or gun control or taxes or immigration, don't let that be defined by what, you know, the Republicans or the Democrats say, do the hard work of figuring out what does the gospel speak to this and then and then own it and then go for it. Um, and I just I just don't think we're very we, as you said, are very good at that. Yeah, let me let me just read a little more. And, and then if we have time to hear, I want to hear what you think. Um Again, from his book, Resident Aliens, he says the primary entity of democracy is the individual, the individual for whom society exists mainly to assist assertions of individuality. Society mm. is formed to supply our needs, no matter the content of those needs, rather than helping us to judge our needs, to have the right needs, which we exercise in right ways. Our society becomes a vast supermarket of desire. Mm. What we call freedom becomes the tyranny of our own desires. Harwa says the American idea of a good society ends up being one that can ensure that in the end, everybody gets to be his or her own tyrant. By contrast, though, the Christian story says you are not an individual. You are a person, which implies an intrinsic connection to others. It also suggests that limits are good for us. The word mm. human names the one who submits to a human community that will inevitably shape and form the person we are becoming. Humans are constituted and determined by our community. That's what it means to be a person. A Christian is a person who belongs first and foremost to the people of God. Christians have a different approach to politics. We believe our job within society is not to bend society to our will. Our job is to season like salt society's understanding of what it means to have right desires in the first place. We do this by embodying Christ in our common life in bold opposition to a culture that usually responds by telling us to go to hell. Wow. I almost just want to close the segment there, right? Like rugged individualism is not right. what we see Jesus teaching in the gospel. That's or right. The pursuit of happiness isn't the ultimate goal of the gospel. And I would close I've told you and I read a lot of articles here and I always say, I always like to read the, what, how they end the article. Like they're usually good writers. Like they end it with like a boom and let me, he does too. Let me read this. It takes a lot of courage to claim Jesus is our politics. He has taught us how to live. I am praying for courage these days. The question is, will we have the courage in this hyper partisan world that we live in to say, yeah, you know, I'm not necessarily right or left Republican or Democrat. I'm, I'm, you like to always say, now I've started calling team Jesus, right? Like I'm going to look through gospel lenses and sometimes that'll make you angry. Uh, really challenging article. We'll post it up at Facebook. We'd encourage you to give it a read and let us know what you think. Uh, do you agree? Do you disagree? Uh, what do you think he's gotten right? Well, coming up next on, on Mondays, we like to talk about what we preached the Sunday day before. Uh, we're going to do that next here on The Common Good. AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're glad you're joining us here on this Monday after the 4th of July weekend. And uh, you and I touched a little bit on our 4th of July weekends before, but uh, 
Tell me about yours just a little bit. I'm wondering, what's the 4th of July weekend? You got some time off, but you got two really little kids. How does that play out? <laughs> well, the walls start to get small. <laughs> I mean, it was blazing hot. Uh, I did just honestly, this is going to sound so hokey. I just loved spending downtime with my family. Like, right. We went on a couple of walks a day. We just played in the backyard. Like we didn't. One day we did go to the Lyle Eyes to the Skies thing. We mm-hmm. I think we've uh, been advertising even on the station. That was really insane <laughs> because <laughs> it's just a, it's like a festival and it's a bunch of people and it's really hot and you had to take a shuttle so we had a stroller, a double stroller, you know, load it up into a bus. Then you know, but the tickets were actually pretty reasonable and we Ooh, strollers got, on a bus. I know Ooh. it actually was kind of worth it. Like we still had a great time. My eldest is still sort of spooked out by crowds, but you know, got some overpriced food, listen to some. Music and like it actually was cool. It actually was really fun. What'd you What'd you guys do? So my family every Fourth of July week. Uh, generally, we were trying to make it almost all week. We go up to um, my brother in law and sister in law, Carrie, my wife's older sister. Uh, she has a they have a cabin mm. out in the woods, like twenty minutes outside the Dells, and it's in the woods. Like you can't see anyone else. My phone basically doesn't work there. It's like off the grid, but then it's also like twenty minutes away from Castle Rock Lake, where they have a boat. And uh, it was it's like our favorite time because the cousins are up there. So my kids are playing. I'm just reading on a porch all the time. But then we're out on the boat playing on the boat, Uh, though. I did have a bit of a near death, maybe my first ever near death experience. One of my first ever like a like a real near death experience. Depends how people think of this. It was honestly, man, actually I'm joking about it now, but it was genuinely terrifying. We were we were going we were kayaking down a river. And uh, my brother-in-law thought the river was going to be like five miles from where we put in to where we put out. And yeah. uh, it ended up being 14 miles. Whole oh, nother geez, story. That's a lot. That's a lot. Different. So we've got lots of kids, like all three of my kids. And the river's high. So the current's going, which is good. But then also there's, you know, there's trees in there. And so there's some parts that were kind of dicey. And we get to one spot in, in uh, the Reader's Digest version is I had to kind of, I got kind of wedged with my nephew oh, and I got under this tree that was down like kind of oh, V gosh. but I had to like lay all the way back and I got under it but then it lost the the current knocked it over so I flipped uh and I came up and I like couldn't breathe like it was the weirdest thing holy cow but that wasn't even the scariest part then I grab onto my like my kayak goes like my brother-in-law gets it yeah I my wife is against another tree, like watching this go on with my daughter, and I grab onto her kayak, and this was the scariest part. I'm like holding onto her kayak. We're trying to figure out what to do, and all of a sudden I realize like this current is sucking me under her kayak. Oh, and geez. I'm like, if I go under that kayak, I am in trouble because yeah. it's all trees. And oh, I gosh. looked at her with like this fear. She said, and I'm like, this thing's pulling me, and so I grabbed something. She pulled me up. I pulled, and it was fine. But it was weird. It really was like. Like, I'm joking. We joked about it the rest of the weekend, but there was a moment where the water was rushing where I'm like, I'm in big trouble like, here. This really could like, be it. I'm in big trouble. Oh, man. I'm and, glad uh, you're okay, man. But I'm here. I'm back. Yeah, geez Louise. <laughs> and I also was like, good thing that wasn't one of the kids. Like, we probably got ourselves into a bit of a kayaking Seriously. situation that was unwise, but. Should have just gone to Lyle Eyes with the skies. That's way safer. <laughs> but you know what was worse was our afternoon in the Dells. <laughs> you ever been to the Dells? I haven't, no. It's the Jersey Shore boardwalk, but in the version <laughs> of a town. It's a town. And that is oh, the Jersey Shore board. It's a heck of a commercial. It uh, it was it was an awesome weekend, not, a near death experience, notwithstanding. Uh, really fun, <laughs> like you said. 
Uh, I told somebody this morning, I had, I had a breakfast meeting and they were like, how was your trip? I said, I actually think I could be a professional vacationer. Like, cause I shut down really well. Wow. I love wow. to play with my kids and just read. Like I don't take stuff from once I start driving home, all the pressure starts coming back in on me, but it was all good. Well, because I was away, I wasn't even at our church, let alone preach this Sunday. Oh, how dare you? Yeah. I, I had quiet time, but, uh, <laughs> I had quiet time. I'm sure you did, but, uh, I know you did preach. So, uh, when we talk about what did you preach, I will quickly answer that question with, I did not, <laughs> uh, but would love to hear what did you do? And I saw somebody on Facebook talking about how awesome your sermon was. So okay. I am ready. Oh, I boy. am ready. What did you preach this on? I'll give you the cliff notes version. It's, uh, we started a three week series called the world's gone mad. So the kind of <laughs> intro was like, do people seem angry? <laughs> Seems like everyone's angry. And, uh, I opened with a, a survey, actually NBC news did a survey of 3000 Americans found that, uh, half of them say they're angrier today than they were a year ago. Wow. And nearly 70% say they got angry at least once a day over something they saw in the news. Here's the kicker. That survey was done in January, 2016. Wow. So like, Without, you know, disclosing too much, have we gotten angrier since January 2016? I think we have. So the whole series, the uh, week three will be about angry at them or mad at them, whoever the them is, the other, you know, other denominations, other people groups, other skin colors, other whatever. Uh, week two will be mad at us, like how we deal with like anger and conflict in the church. Wow. But yesterday was, we called it mad at me, that sometimes the person we're most mad at is ourselves. That's heavy. And, and kind of, it was pretty heavy, yeah. but also it was pretty cool. We talked a little bit. I mean, I got to just walk people through a lot of like grace one-on-one stuff. Like we opened it with James, you know, James says, my dear brothers and sisters, take note of this. Everyone should be quick to listen, slow to speak, slow to become angry, which is a verse that a lot of us know. But yep. the very next verse says, because human anger does not produce the righteousness that God desires. So it's like, if we want to see God's dream realized in the world, yeah. Our bursts of anger are not going to get us there. So I unpacked some of the things that I think we tend to get angry about. Talked about two different kinds of failures, typically things that we've done that we wish we hadn't or things we didn't do that we wish we had. So, you know, the book of common prayer kind of talks a little bit about this idea of God, forgive me for the ways that we've sinned against you, both for things we've done and the things we've left undone, Mm. you know? So I talked about uh, the idea of God's grace, erasing our guilt God's grace defining our identity and God's grace redeeming our future. And uh, it just was really mm. interesting because kind of even in preparation, I thought, okay, this talk is going to in particular really hit new Christians or people yep. kind of dip in a toe in the waters. Yeah. I found though that it actually was a lot of the veteran Christ followers who were like, man, I needed that reminder. Like wow. that was, that was the probably one of the more surprising parts for me just because I don't know, like, it, it, the conversation of grace can be kind of one of those things that if you've been a Christ follower for a long time, you're sort of like, yeah, 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 I get yeah. grace. I get grace. But like, I think there's a, a Tim Keller quote that I use that um, he wrote a book called Jesus, the King. And he said, a gospel is an announcement of something that's happened in history, something that's been done that changes your status forever. Other religions say, this is what you have to do in order to connect to God forever. This is how you have to live in order to earn your way to God. Yeah. But the gospel says this is what has been done in history. This is how Jesus lived and died to earn the way to God for you, mm. which is sort of gospel 101. Yep, yep. And yet we kind of talked about the ways that we keep going back to our failures and our regrets, the, the stuff that we kind of hold on to and sort of kind of the challenge was, I mean, God, yeah, we have all sin and fall short. But God erases that guilt, though. And there is no shame. There's no condemnation. Yeah. Christ Jesus, that he looks at us. He adopts us. And his word literally says he takes great pleasure. And he doesn't reluctantly save us. He's coming after us. And it's his joy to do that. And I think 
for me, it was such a reminder that like in the story of the prodigal son, you know, mercy gave the son a second chance, but grace threw him a party. You know, like it's, it's not just, okay, wipe the slate clean. He's like, no, you're my beloved son or daughter. And it felt just like, uh, it felt like, like a revival type message a little bit, you know, like let's, let's not forget the very fundamentals of what it is that we're saying every week, because, you know, I think sometimes we're inclined to forget. And sometimes that anger at ourselves can be something that really holds us back from, you know, growing into the Jesus clothes that he's already given us. You know what I mean? So the anger at them and the anger at us, that will be powerful. But the anger at myself, I think is the one that's crippling. Yeah. And I don't think we can, I think they're all connected too. I think the ways that we start to heal, some of the angry at me stuff is by actually extending forgiveness to the people around us. I think it's all, it's all, it's all interconnected. Oh, that's cool, man. I look forward to hearing about the next two. Thanks. That'll be good. Well, coming up next, uh, we lost a giant in the Christian world over the last couple of weeks, a man by the name of Norman Geisler. Uh, We're going to discuss what he has done uh, to help shape the evangelical world. That's coming up next on the common good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life, alongside Ian Simpkins. My name is Brian Fromm. We're glad to have you joining us today on this Monday afternoon. You can follow us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. That's The Common Good Radio Show. You can find our podcasts wherever it is you get your podcasts, whether it be uh, Google Play. Is it Google Play? Apple Podcasts? Is that what we decided? I mean, we. I don't think Apple we Play. have the power to Apple decide <laughs> what it is or isn't. <laughs> Here's what we want you to do. We want you to subscribe. We want you to rate, review, tell your friends, and uh, have them subscribe, rate, review. That's the way this game works, right? But also, the people who already have, thank you. That actually does help us a lot when you subscribe and like it. I don't want to... Brian's waving me off. Don't don't thank them. Just, don't get a big head. Just give them marching orders. No, I just want to... We do notice it, and we uh, appreciate it. Also, reviewing it does actually help. And that was brought to you by Brian and Ian's pastoral philosophies. <laughs> <laughs> just give them marching orders. Here's thank three, you. Three principles that start with the same letter about why you should... We should actually come up with a sermon... Let's do a whole segment in the future about why they subscribe to the podcast. Yes, and I'll, I'll bet you we could get that. We'll get them walking down the aisles. They'll be <laughs> no. That would be such a waste of nine minutes. Uh, yeah. Speaking of, no, I'm just kidding. Oh. <laughs> you can find the podcast wherever it is you get your podcast online at eleven sixty hope dot com. There you can find old shows. Uh, you can stream us uh, if you're if you're out and about, and uh, you can text us. 68683, that's 68683, type in CG, uh, followed by your comment, your question, uh, your observation, whatever it is you might have for us. Well, over the weekend, uh, or earlier last week, uh, there was a guy who's described as a masterful theologian who leaves behind nearly 130 book titles and a global impact. His name was, he's an apologist by the name of Norman Geisler, uh, and he passed away at the age of 86. Think about this. At the age of 86, he had just retired two months ago from public ministry and he was hospitalized over last weekend after suffering a blood clot in his brain. He was described as a quote cross between Thomas Aquinas and Billy Graham. Wow. Like that is how about that description right there? Louise. It says Geisler Geisler was a prolific author, apologist, and a professor, co-founder and former president of Southern Evangelical Seminary in North Carolina, co-founder of Veritas International University in California. He was known over 70 years as a, as a model of defending the faith and the Bible through classical apologetics. And what makes him fascinating 
is he was one of the few and first philosophers, just kind of he, he is a philosopher. He was one of the first philosophers who embraced evangelicalism and kind of stood up and defended it. Uh, and so lots of people coming out talking about um, he, Geisler's work. And uh, so, uh, for instance, um, here's this quote for us. Dr. Geisler's latest defense of the faith was like a long drink of cold water in the midst of what was too often an arid and sterile theological landscape. Dr. Geisler has been the go to authority for more than two generations of evangelical seminary students who were looking for a bold, erudite and uncompromisingly faithful defense of the inerrant, infallible word of God and the historical doctrines of the Christian faith. And one last thing in 2004, he co-wrote a popular book. I love this title entitled this. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. So I don't know if you have any, uh, um, any interaction with Geisler's work. I know I did in college, especially, but anytime he, I've got his big book on my shelf, anytime there's kind of apologetic stuff to kind of work through, but, uh, thoughts about a kind of an evangelical kind of scholarly giant passing away. Uh, yeah. You know, I, I, uh, I think I read, some articles by him uh, at undergrad, but I honestly can't remember. Mm. And it is one of the things that I always find so surprising about, like this is definitely in our lane, at least not maybe theologically necessarily, but we're both pastors. And I am often surprised when someone who is described as a cross between Thomas Aquinas and Billy Graham, I was like, Oh man, I'm, I'm only sort of familiar with that name. And it's amazing to me how, how like based on region or theological proclivity someone could be a juggernaut for one person and for someone else could be like oh, i think i recognize yep, that name yep. like that's always odd to me like and i you know it's probably the same in sports and music you know some somebody could mean so much to you and someone else like oh, i have no idea who that is but exactly either way though Basically, I think, every music that we have here that you tell me about right? you're like yeah I've done, i don't listen to me you just listen to like static is that just when you go <laughs> you drive home you just put on podcast of the st- common good over and over <laughs> and over again yeah that is we'll talk about that later but uh, yeah i think in general someone uh who is a prolific author apologist and professor um whether or not i necessarily agree with every position he held i think is is certainly interesting that whole movements of the you know different arms of our faith have experienced the rise and fall and you know i think particularly in this era too the fact that he he lived to 86 without any notable like scandal right. or like that to me is at the very least refreshing in this current age i guess that like he just faithfully you know, he was at least behind nearly 130 titles in Global Impact. Like, I don't know that I've read 130. T- you know what I mean? Like that's that's that to me alone is a feat worth saying. Okay, you know, even if we're not totally alive, that is that's funny. That's long obedience in the same direction, yes, right there. Yes, you know what yes. I mean? I, I do really appreciate that. We read this from one of his uh, ment- mentorees. It would be a mentoree, someone he mentored. That'd be a men- mentoree. It's just a mentee, isn't it? A mentee. Yeah, it's like a it's like a mint, but with an accent. It's like a, a, Somebody who was mentored by Dr. Geisler uh, wrote this upon his passing. Dr. Geisler knew that he either had to find answers to people's objections or he must stop sharing his faith. Since the latter was not an option, Dr. Geisler dedicated his life to defending the Christian faith. And, so, you know, he said, this is what my life is going to be about. Uh, and he went about going, uh, uh, doing it. What do you think about the title? I've always found this fascinating. I don't have enough faith to be an atheist. Uh, I know this is off a little bit off of talking about Dr. Geisler, but uh, the fact that that atheism requires a good amount of faith, I think, is something that would surprise people. But when you actually think about it, it, it kind of fits. 
Yeah, I don't know that I would necessarily pit them against each other yeah. in that same way, but I do think it is worth saying that like everyone's living out some kind of faith period. Um, and I, I, I think I even posted something like this a couple of days ago. I said, uh, you're always sharing your faith, whether you intend to or not, yeah, whatever it is that you that, have yeah. faith in. Uh, and I do think it's interesting when people talk about like, oh, I'm just not a person of faith. Like, no, you definitely are. Like there is something yeah. you worship, someone you worship. There is something you believe in. Uh, and I think it is worth at least saying, man, everyone has to take a leap at some level. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that does sort of ruffle some feathers sometimes because people we have, I think, co-opted faith to mean something specifically spiritual or religious. But I don't think that's actually what it is. I yeah. think uh, when we can at least level the playing field and say, hey, we're, we're all working on our faiths right now. I just totally disagree with your conclusion or yeah. whatever that may look like. I think to talk about it in that in that way is helpful. And not be, not to be <clears throat> too melancholy, but when you read articles like this, this was his basically his obituary in the Christianity Today. Uh, it does. You can't. I can't help but every now and then think as I read stuff like this, like, man, that's a really impressive like life that's laid out. Like you said, long obedience in the same direction, all this kind of stuff. And I often think to myself, what will they write about me? Mm. You know, like what would they write about me? And again, that's kind of melancholy, kind of. Uh, I don't think so. But I think it's an important thing because we oft, I've often said in sermons and stuff like how you want to be remembered. Uh, that's not going to happen by accident. Yeah, like, right. It's, it's kind of it, it not kind of it is determined by how you live now. What are right. your primor- priorities now? How do you treat people now? What's your faith look like now? Uh, it's the old poem, right? Like the, the dash that we don't control our the beginning of our tombstone or the end of the tombstone. But that dash in the middle, how are you going to live it? And so when I read stuff like that, where someone like this and of course, you know, I'm sure he obviously wasn't perfect, uh, but to be described in this way, like, well done, right? Well done. Yeah. yeah, I think it is worth stating, too. It isn't probably all that helpful when thinking about the dash to just hold your life up to the juggernauts of your field sure, or church sure, or whatever sure. to say, OK, what? how can I be faithful here and now if you're listening or driving or following the pilot? Like, how can I be faithful? Whatever it is God has given me right here and now, the people, the resources, the space, the sphere, God, help me to be obedient in the here and now. And I think that is, that's always a timely question to ask. That's really good. Well, coming up next, speaking of Christianity today, uh, we are going to spend some time in studio with Mark Galley. Uh, he is the editor in chief of Christianity today. And so that's coming up next here on the common good AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. We're excited to have you joining us today on this Monday afternoon. Uh, and we love when we get people in the studio just to have some some conversation with. And with that in mind, we are uh, thrilled to welcome into our studio today, Mark Galley. Mark, thanks for joining us today. Hey, glad to join you. Absolutely. Mark is the editor and chief of Christianity Today He's got lots of other things on his bio, uh, but at Christianity Today and as the editor in chief, you've just written a series of columns um, about worship and about more about American Christianity called the elusive presence. Uh, and I'm curious, kind of a grand scale question, just your thoughts as to why you wrote this. Why did you feel like you wanted to invest this much time kind of uh talking about and dissecting and analyzing American Christianity? Well, I am uh, in my 60s now, and I've been observing. <laughs> I've been embedded in the evangelical movement for some time since I've been like 13. Yeah. 
And I've spent a lot of time thinking about it, reading about it, writing about it. And I thought, uh, well, this is kind of the time in life when one steps back and says, okay, this is what I'm observing. Now, part of that observation comes out of my, observing my own life. Yeah, as, yeah. as the very first essay in this uh, series indicated, I remember coming to a conclusion. I can't remember if it was a single day or over a period of days where I, I just realized I was a really good professional Christian. Mm. That is to say, I knew I could... I could be an editor at a Christian, a leading Christian magazine. I could be a church member. I could be a, um, participate in the church's life and not pray, not read my yeah. Bible. I knew how to, how to do it well. It yeah. wasn't that I didn't believe in God or didn't try to follow him, but there, it, there was not this sense of active uh, involvement with God and with me and God. Oh, it was like good. I was doing the things I was supposed to do. Right. And as I looked around, I began to realize that my whole life was kind of horizontally focused on love of neighbor as well. It should be, Mm. Uh, but that there were large parts of the evangelical movement, especially American Christianity who were, I mean, that's our kind of a calling card in world Christianity. We are the doers. Yeah. We're the people that get things done. That's right. And I just got to thinking, where does the commandment love the Lord, your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, all your soul. How does that fit in? And that's what got me thinking about this theme and decided to put it down into words. So that's actually, a sentiment that Brian and I bring up a lot because we, we are both pastors and we have probably sometimes um, in an unplanned fashion admitted on the show how how tempting it is to get caught just in the in the work of Christianity and how sometimes that's even perpetuated by our churches. Like, well, you're the professional. You're the one on stage. Mm-hmm. I give my tithe so that you do the work. <laughs> yeah. And, and that can be really convicting. And one of the things in one of these essays, uh, you were interviewing Rob Bell about uh, a book at the time that he'd written. You asked him, what, what, is the, what is the purpose of the church? And he said, the purpose of the church is to make the world a better place. And I think many people at first blush would say, oh, that's a great answer. And yeah. you kind of go on to unpack a little bit of some of your issues with that. Would you talk to me a little bit more about that conversation and, and where you went? Yeah, having in a seminary and then later studied uh, much church history, that's been one of my passions. It, it struck me that that was an almost identical phrase to... Uh, to uh, what, what we now call the social gospel, mm-hmm. yeah. um, which was whose vision in the 19th century was primarily to, the church's role was to make a, the world a better place along with industry, along with labor, along right. with education. That's what it, it end, ended up devolving into hmm. kind of a more purely social work with yeah. a religious veneer. And that's hmm. what struck me as really amazing for him to say that because evangelical tradition has been basically uh, has fought against social justice movement. Now, right. I think we've gotten to the point where we recognize getting involved in in the world, trying to help our neighborhoods be more just and fair and good and beautiful and flourishing is a good thing. Yes. Mm-hmm. But what struck me about that was, as I began to look around, is that has become that notion that the church's job is to make the world a better place or the purpose of the church is to change the world Hmm. that's become kind of the overriding, what I'd call the ecclesiology or the view of the church. Yeah. I think, and I need to qualify this. I think the church does have a mission to the world. No question about it. But right. I think the very purpose and essence of the church is not about making the world a better place. And so I argued in that, and I'm arguing in this entire series, our very purpose at the very core, which begins with worship mm. is to glorify God and enjoy him forever. And if we lose track of that, 
I don't know. I just feel it. It's a big problem. Let's summarize it. Well, that that's way. from the Westminster Catechism, right? Yes. To, to, right. To enjoy God, yeah. to glory in him. And yeah. I, I think that definition certainly does work in conjunction with, like you're saying, the love of neighbor and all of that. Yeah. But to get that order out of whack can actually yeah. really screw that, things that's up. That's the thing I'm, I'm trying to address. Yeah. yeah. How do you feel like, um, as you've looked at this over the years and been a part of it, how do... Uh, what does it look like to get that right? Because it's such a fine line right there, right? The, the, the whole missional church movement and there's other stuff. How do churches get that right, that they've got enough mission going on, but it's driven by the right thing? What, what are some aspects of churches you think that do that right? Well, a lot of this comes down to uh, what I'd call uh, discernment of your own spirit. Hmm. And I think that's the place where it begins. So when I make these sweeping statements about the evangelical church or the American church, I'm assuming the, the reader is going to do some discernment of spirit and saying, you know, that isn't really my experience or that really mm-hmm. is. And some of that discernment comes in. Uh, when I wake up in the morning, what am I most excited about? Mm. Uh, this morning was very typical. I just mm-hmm. did not want to do morning prayer. Mm. just did not want to do it, which signals I have this to-do list yeah. that really makes me excited and interested about waking up and getting my day started, hmm. which suggests that God is all well and good, but he's kind of get in, getting in the way <laughs> yeah. of the things I have to do today. Yeah. Hmm. And that signals to me a moment when I should just stop and say, Lord, my heart is not in the right place and I can't manipulate my heart to be in the right place. Only you can do that. Yeah. Right. So as I begin this time, uh, creating me new heart, oh God, hmm. creating me a new heart. Yeah. And um, I think that's where it starts. What does it motivate us? What does it get us excited? When, when we find ourselves, I don't know, uh, you gentlemen may be greater saints than I am, but there are days I don't want to go to worship. Yeah. Just Ian is. Just, yeah. <laughs> not, even, not even close. There are, I, I have tried to uh, punctuate my day more with prayer, even though it's a five yeah. or 10 minute like time at noon or at late in the afternoon or evening. I find myself forgetting to do it. Mm. I find myself resistant to doing it. Yeah. And I'm thinking, what is with this with a person who says he's given his life to God? Yes. And right. that he is, loves God with all his heart, mind, soul, mind, and strength. Yeah. Doesn't want to spend even five <laughs> minutes at lunch with him. Right. What's with that? Gosh. Yeah, yeah. So one of the things I'm trying to emphasize is that this is not, in a sense, an unusual posture to be in. It's right. nothing to... Uh, despair and yeah. say, this is, I'm the worst human being ever. It's so utterly typical that we don't even hardly notice it. Yes. And what I'm trying to get us to do is notice it. And yes. Yes. We have to still get up, get our kids to school. We right. have to go to this Christian education committee. Yes. We need to share the gospel with our neighbors. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. But what, what is really driving that? Yes. Yeah. Okay, so first off, I got to say how much I appreciate that posture because mm-hmm. I, I, that's again something we talk a lot about. Like we were handed this tradition, this idea that especially the professional Christians probably get up every morning and just love it, and they're always in the Word. And I always <laughs> felt like such a failure yeah. because all the pastors that I knew, you know, were journaling seventeen hours a day. I'm like, <laughs> I, I don't have that in me <laughs> at all. So I'm just curious, just personally. Because I think one of the best definitions of Sabbath I was ever given was what to ask the question, what stirs my affections for Christ? And I was in my 20s when I heard that. And I was like, I've never even asked that question. I just sort of did. I did Christian things. And I'm curious for you, just as a human, as a as an image bearer, what are the things that stir your affections for Christ right now in your own kind of daily, weekly rhythms? So I do. Mm. Uh, I'm. 
<laughs> that's an odd phrase. I'm pretty religious about morning devotions. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. So, uh, and I'm reading um, what's called Liturgy of the Hours. It's a Catholic resource. Mm, yes. But it includes three psalms. It includes uh, uh, an opening psalm, three psalms, uh, a longer scripture reading, and then a, usually a, a, a reading from the ancient church fathers, and then concludes with a prayer. So that's that's an absolute minimum. Love it. Uh, and, uh, yeah, there are days when I just do it because I know I need to keep doing it. Yeah. But, it, it, but invariably there's some part of that morning in which I go click. Okay. Yes. This is what I'm about. Yes. It's the Lord. Yes. It's the Lord first, first and foremost. Yeah. And when I'm able to just stop and do that, uh, if I can, it doesn't happen very much at noon. I will have to admit sometimes <laughs> I end up with evening prayer, sometimes mm. prayer right before I go to bed. Um, anytime I can, um, so that would be part of it. Just, uh, in other words, anything I'm interested in, hmm. I try to find excuses during the day to do it. Hmm. So if there's something I can do during the day to help me remind myself to, uh, whatever, <laughs> I try to make a discipline of it. And that's, yeah. but it has to be an engaged discipline. It can't be, I'm just doing this to get it out of the way yeah, right. and I can chalk up. I did a devotional mm-hmm. eight days in a row. Isn't right. that great? Yeah. Right. But more entering into it, engaging it, uh, sometimes just stopping in the middle of it and saying, okay, instead of just reading this road, let's just stop and meditate on this. Phrase, yeah. That's beautiful. Yeah. Well, I'm finding this fascinating. So let's do another, let's do another segment of it. And uh, we're excited that Mark Galley is here with us. Mark is going to stay with us for another segment here on the common good. AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160, Hope for Your Life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm, and we are joined in studio uh, by Mark Galley. Mark is the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. And uh, Mark, uh, looking at your bio, I I came across one fascinating line. It says this, before becoming a journalist, he was a Presbyterian pastor for 10 years, but he subsequently changed his denominational affiliation to Anglican. Uh, so you're steeped in the evangelical world, and you were a Presbyterian pastor. Now you're an Anglican. I just want to hear about that journey a little bit. Well, when I was a pastor, I was naturally uh, struggling with this very same issue, and I hmm. found my morning prayers, which were all driven by uh, extemporaneous prayer. Yeah, I found myself praying in ways that made me think, that isn't really what I'm trying to say, or mm-hmm. that feels so paltry and thin compared to what I'm actually wanting to express to God. And I found in the Episcopal Book of Common Prayer, prayers that were just absolutely magnificent and summed up what I was trying to say. Most mm-hmm. merciful God, I've, I, I, I confess to you that I've sinned in word and, you know, by what I've done and what, what I have left undone. That's right. And it goes on in that sort of vein. And I, I, I finished that. And as the prayer is moving along, I'm thinking of individual sins, but it talks about it generally. And I think. Yeah, that's what I've been meaning to say. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. So when I left the pastor to become a journalist, I decided, well, maybe I should check into a more liturgical uh, form of worship. And I found that it was, uh, I will say for a person like me, in terms of this notion of the love of God, the, the liturgical worship does, in fact, help spark that more mm, uh, interesting. than anything. Uh, partly because, uh, partly pr- precisely because it's, it's, uh, it's, we repeat the same prayers and responses every week that yeah. most, many people find that a turnoff for that sort of thing. Mm. I find that as I'm forced to li- read those or listen to those same prayer responses, 
it forces me to go deeper into the text. Yes, right. And so that helps me nurture that desire for God. Wow. It's the same sense of like the Lectio Divina, right? This divine reading is, is, you know, I think so often we crave new and shiny. Yeah. And like one of the attributes of the Holy Spirit that Jesus tells us is that he'll remind you of the things I've already told you. This this sort of like ancient, remember what I told you then yeah. when you're, you know, tempted to crave new or shiny or fast. And I yeah. think and what you're explaining there is actually, really true. Boredom is probably a signal from the Holy Spirit that not to go on to something new, but to find mm. out why are you bored? Oh, that's why a are you question. bored with it? What do you do with that question? When you feel the Holy Spirit nudging you in that way, like, why are you bored with this? Where do you go? Where, where does your mind and heart uh, go? Uh, it, one of the things it forces me to do, go, okay, what is it, what is it about this? that uh, I'm finding boring and well, let's just keep reading it till it's not. That's really? sort of thing. Yeah. What is going on? What is really going on here? Wow. See, I think that's, that's interesting because I, I don't know that and maybe, maybe there's some research to support this. It feels like our attention spans as a culture are getting shorter and shorter and shorter. Definitely. Yeah. The first time I was invited to write for like an online blog, they're like, keep it 700 words or less emphasis on or less. Or less. I was yeah. like, 700 is an introduction. Like what? <laughs> like People don't have patience for no. that. Like how do you help inspire people to push through the boredom, whether they f- consider themselves a religious person or not there. We know that a lot of listeners are kind of like dipping a toe in the waters of religious conversation. Like what advice or encouragement would you give? Like when you're feeling the urge just to close it up, walk away, move on to something new. Like how yeah, do you but power just through? to remind yourself that I think boredom is a, is a gift of the spirit. Wow. It means that there is something askew in your heart and in your mind Man. and you're not re- You're actually looking at something. Usually it's scripture. Yeah. Uh, that's actually the word of God to you. Mm. And uh, it may not be that there's something wrong with scripture, but there may be something wrong with you. I yeah. mean, <laughs> one of my theories is that, or not, 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 not with you. I don't mean to be moralistic about that. Sure. But, sure. But th- th- there's that part of us that just really doesn't want to know God and to love him because to know God means I'll have to do things. <laughs> I'll have to obey him when I don't feel like it. Uh-huh. I'll have to go through some suffering I will have to be willing to be exposed to some sins in my life. That's right. Um, and I mean, we, we talk about uh, the lack of Bible knowledge in yeah. the last generation falling off. And there's, and we've tended to chalk it up to the Bible's hard to understand and it's off putting. So we create more and more translations that are easier to read. And mm-hmm. we create more and more Bible reading methods and the level of uh, Bible illiteracy continues to go down. Mm. My pet theory, I have no way of proving this, is that we read the Bible less and less, not because it's hard to understand, because it's too easy to understand. Oh, interesting. And it forces us to actually deal with the Lord our God. Hmm. And I don't know about you, but there are days I don't want to do that. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. He is a, you know, mighty, he's merciful, he's loving, he's gracious, but he also has a vision for us to be better than we are today. That's right. To be more holy, to be more like Christ. And we all know that that, that the the end process is awfully awesome. Yeah, yeah. the yeah, process no in between is sometimes <laughs> right. painful. The chiseling, the hammering yeah, away. Right. Yeah. I'm wondering, as somebody again, as the editor in chief of Christianity Day, you guys are in steeped in evangelicalism. Are you guys? Are you personally? hopeful for American Christianity where it's going or are you all the way in the other end? Like, man, we need a reformation. <laughs> like there's that yeah. we need something big somewhere in the middle. Where, where are you personally at? Well, I, I certainly think we need a reformation, certainly in evangelicalism. I mean, mm. evangelicalism started with, uh, with, with people being on fire, you know, the cliche on fire for Ooh. the Lord. Of course it was an awakening, an unusual moment, but uh, there was this vital personal living relationship with Christ that they were known for. Yeah. I do think it would be helpful, Lord, 
you know, to mm. bring us another revival, but that's mm. up to him and his timing. Um, in the, in the question of whether I'm hopeful, uh, the answer is, of course, I'm hopeful because yeah. God has never deserted his church. Mm. That's right. uh, things might get a lot worse for another decade or two or maybe even a century. I don't know. But I'm certainly not unhopeful. I mean, people talk about the evangelical movement uh, in crisis and fading away. And that may be. And maybe the modern expression of evangelicalism may fade away. But the Lord in every generation has raised up people who love Jesus. Yes. Who respect the authority of Scripture and obey it. Who emphasize the cross and the resurrection and want to be out there witnessing for Christ in word and deed. He'll raise up another group. I don't yeah. know. They might be called something else. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he's a good God. Yeah. He's not going to he's not going to leave us. Yes. OK, so that's actually, I think, a perfect segue, because one of the entries in this essay series, the title alone is pretty provocative. And I, and I know that you caught some heat for it. Even uh, the title is the church does not exist for the sake of the world. Would you just unpack that a little bit? And maybe if you have time, explain some of the heat that you got and how you, how you responded to that. Yeah, the, well, the heat comes from people who are really, really uh, impressive Christians who, who mm. emphasize the missional, the mission, the church's missional uh, role or yeah. its mission, right. but it's more simply, right. which is to uh, love the neighbor as the self. And sometimes that love means sharing the gospel. Sometimes it means feeding the hungry. That's right. yeah. Sometimes it means working for racial justice. Uh, but uh, as I point out in these essays, when when missional starts wagging the dog, uh, things are really messed up mm-hmm. and it's going to lead to, it's either going to lead to more of a social gospel than which God becomes more per- peripheral element, mm. or it's going to uh, lead people just to leave the church. Because if you actually want to make a difference in the world, yeah, you should go into politics or you should go into business because they're really good at that. Interesting. Mm. Uh, church is only so, so at that sort of thing. Uh, but what we're really good at is uh, we have a, 2000 year tradition of uh, worshiping God of discipling people. Hmm. One of the things we disciple them to do is to love the neighbor and to go out and that's right. Uh, And that if you look at scripture, you look at the, all the eschatological passages, the passages that talk about what is the end time like, right? They all have to do with the people of God from all over the world, all the cultures of the world, all the Kings of the earth come together in the new Jerusalem and they worship Hmm. and they glorify him. And they are just filled with beatitude, with blessing, with with joy and happiness. That's really good. Being in the presence of God. Yeah. Uh, one of the things that indicates to me that we are a little askew in terms of our understanding right now is that when people say, well, you mean heaven's just a worship service? Mm. That makes it sound so boring to them. Yeah. But if heaven is a place where I could still can play soccer and go fly fishing and do my painting, <laughs> that's much more interesting. Right. And I'm thinking, when I feel that, I'm thinking, okay, that God is the greatest. Mm. The thing I enjoy about fly fishing or whatever is a hint wow. of how great God is. Wow. It's a picture. It's a little taste. Yeah. So, um, I forget what the question was, but I just rambled <laughs> on. No, you, My preacher great. got it. No, you so, answered it beautifully. All right. It's beautiful. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, you're listening to Mark Galley. He's the editor in chief of Christianity. Uh, today, if you've got feedback, questions, whatever you would like to give us, you could do so at Facebook at the common good radio show. Or you can text us at 68683. Uh, for Ian Simkins, I'm Brian Fromm. This is The Common Good, AM 1160. Hope for your life. Welcome back to The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Alongside Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. You can find us on Facebook at The Common Good Radio Show. 
You can find old shows at 1160hope.com or on Google Play, Apple Podcasts, wherever it is you get your podcasts. And uh, we are joined one more one more segment here by Mark Galley, Editor-in-Chief of Christianity Today. Thanks for letting us keep you for so long. We really appreciate it. Happy to do it. <laughs> so just this weekend, I was online looking around, and uh, I follow Christianity Today on Twitter, and up pops an article called The Temptations of Evangelical Worship. As a pastor and as an evangelical and a radio host, I'm like, wow, this is down my alley. I want to read this. And, uh, and as I read it, I was like, oh, who wrote it? Right. Realize that you wrote it. So that's wading into, you know, some choppy waters. And, and so I'm curious um, if you could just kind of summarize for us, what are the temptations of evangelical worship? And in it, you kind of give some critique as to some things that uh, are dangerous or, or bothersome about yeah. typical evangelical yeah, yeah. worship that uh, I think are very interesting. Well, the uh, the the new music that we enjoy today, called praise music or mm-hmm. worship music, however you want to call it, has actually been a tremendous boon for the church. I think it's actually accomplishing a lot of the things I'm trying to accomplish in this service, and mm. in the sense that its it, its attempt is to focus worship on God and to glorify God. So. I'd want to start off by saying that, even though I'm a, an old-fashioned Anglican who loves his <laughs> hymns, I get yes, it. I right. get the I get the new music stuff. Right. Um, but here's the thing I've noticed in in services in myself and uh, seemingly in in the people that worship with me is that I don't know sometimes if we know what we're singing, mm. which makes me wonder if I if we really know what we're there for. So, for example, we sing a song that says, "Bring your glory down, Lord." Well, I want to see your glory. Right. Uh, make me aware of your glory. And I don't think we know what we're asking for because in the Bible, when the glory of God comes down to people, yeah. Isaiah falls on the ground afraid mm-hmm. he's going to die. Right. People freak out. People yeah. freak out. Yeah. When Jesus shows his glory in the catch of the fish, Peter falls to his knees and says, Lord, I am a sinner. Uh, but this isn't what we're looking for when we sing that song. What we're looking for is a, an, a, an uplifting emotional spiritual yeah. experience mm-hmm. which let's just say it that is a great thing yeah okay yeah but i think contemporary worship often wants to focus on only on that mm. uh moving people toward a positive spiritual experience which makes me sometimes wonder when i walk into wor- worship do i want to now worship god and meet him even if it's not going to be a good experience right or do i just come to church because i want a really good spiritual experience right and that would be another example of how the horizontal what goes on in me and among others often ends up trumping the vertical that's right um so that's uh, that's sort of the basic baseline and again you can't <laughs> I'm not criticizing worship music right I'm not criticizing the raising of hands in worship and looking for some infusion of love and grace. Right. Uh, what I'm look, asking people to do is, uh, again, just look into your heart. Not, not during the service. You don't want to be super introspective while you're in worship. But later go, uh, you know, how can I enter into worship so that it isn't just about me and my feelings? That's right. But it is really about God. And I'm asking us just to do a self-inventory. I'm not That's trying great. to condemn what we're doing. But I am saying, and I, I'm, I make no excuses that, Liturgical churches, which I'm a part of, and also just sing, if they just sing classical hymns, believe me, 
they can make the liturgy the t- total focus of the service. And they can be, after the service, be talking to another about how the acolyte failed to light the right candles. <laughs> and they've got to talk to the pastor about training the acolyte properly. Yes. And you're going, okay, I don't know that that was the purpose of worship to get, yeah, you, right. to get the liturgy right. That's okay? right. That's right. So it happens in all churches. Mm-hmm. And it's just a little yellow flag. Take a look. Yeah. I think that's so important. One of my mentors and has been for a decade plus is a professor at Judson University, a guy named Warren Anderson, who oversees the whole worship department there. Yeah. And it's taught me so much about what this article is asserting so beautifully. And this idea that you touch on a little bit is that even in some of our subtle, easily overlooked language, we talk about worship like it's the opening act to the main event, which is the sermon, which isn't worship. And then we have Ties yeah. and offerings in the table and all of that. Yeah. How do you help? Because I think sometimes like when I, Brian and I both talked about this, when we bring up like, let's all worship. In fact, even when we leave this building, it's worship. Uh, and sometimes people kind of roll their eyes. Like we get it. Pastor. Yeah, yeah, like, right. <laughs> Talking like a pastor. But seriously, let's close in worship. Like, <laughs> yeah. uh, so how do you help without making it seem like you're majoring in the minors or you're parsing hairs? Like how do you help people have a better understanding whether or not their stylistic um, proclivities differ? Because you talk about the part rock band, part late night comedy show, which yeah. when that preaching one comes out, I, I am going to have to read it and I hope that you'll come back. Cause I can't wait okay. to hear what you have to say. But how, but all that to say, it how might you, be painful. Yeah, right. I'm sure it will be. But how do you how do you help people begin to at least expand some of the categories of what it is that you're talking about without scaring them off or make it seem like you're just getting caught in semantics? Well, I think one thing might be to help people understand uh, that worship, even though I emphasize the the part in which we give glory and honor to God, worship in itself is a dialogue always, and there's those parts of the service in which we are giving praise or confessing to God. Right. There are parts of the service in which God is speaking to us. And that's yes. through the scripture reading, for example, yes. through the preaching of the word. Uh, and this is a, it's a, it's a conversation. It's a drama. It's a, hmm. it's a dialogue uh, that's going on now in worship. The difference between worship in a church setting and worship out in the world. Uh, obviously there are there, everybody, everybody has a, a liturgy of some sort in which right. they find this is the best way to carry on this conversation with God and this dialogue with God. And, mm. and it's really, in, it's much more intense than things that happen in the world. But if we conceive of worship, not just as something we give to God, but that it's this dialogue that's going on, then every part of the service has mm. meaning. Mm. The, the sermon is God to us. The offering is offering to God. Mm-hmm. The hymns can, can work either way. Actually. That's right. That's right. It can be God speaking to us or us praising God. Uh, and it, it's this, back and forth thing that makes it so to me dynamic interesting and finally it's like a dance almost it's like yeah. a dance another yeah. dance would be an, a dance would be another way of wow. putting it that's yeah. beautiful uh taking the topic a little differently yeah, as the editor-in-chief of christianity today I, I really just wanted to ask you as i was thinking about this interview like what's that like <laughs> like you're part of a institution and in evangelicalism was started literally by billy graham and like i wonder if that's pressure or is that an honor <laughs> or is it both like what is it like to well, lead? What is it like to lead a publication like Christianity Today? Well, it is a responsibility, that's for sure. Yeah. Um, but it, it is an it is an onerous responsibility, especially when you buy, you know, quote unquote, buy into the mission and the mm-hmm. way we do it, which yeah. is uh, we try to be faithful biblically to what we think Christ is calling us to do in the world today, mm-hmm. and we try to engage people in ways that are what we call ironic, uh, love people. You know, speak the truth in love. We that's try right. not to be mean spirited. We yeah. try to be fair to people we disagree with, that sort mm. of thing. And I think that's just a tremendous mission. Uh, well, here's how it works. If anything happens on 
Christianity Today you like, well, I'm responsible for it. <laughs> and if you don't like it, somehow I had nothing to do with it. It was while right, you were right. out of the office. Right. Right. I was on vacation that week. <laughs> <laughs> but there is a, uh, as editor-in-chief, of course, I don't see everything that goes up beforehand. Yeah, I, right. I, I'm not involved in the day-to-day. I try to set vision. I talk to the senior leaders who actually are responsible for that. Right. Uh, so that, that's part of my job. Uh, big issues, uh, I ask to see copy ahead of time. Uh, right. That's obvious, uh, but I also do other stuff like some fundraising because we're a nonprofit, uh, and I, I I do you know these silly crazy radio shows when they wanted to come on. <laughs> silly crazy, I'll take that. We'll, we'll do, that's fitting. Yeah. <laughs> uh, partly to yeah communicate things that I've been writing, but I've yeah. been writing them on behalf of Christianity Today, right? Uh, and I do want other people to. Spread those, spread that word and see if it makes sense to people. Hopefully they'll find it helpful. I love that. All right. So like in 30 seconds or less, I mentioned this earlier. We know that there's plenty of people that listen, some who are deeply entrenched in the local church, many of whom have been burned by it and walked away. Some who are, are maybe dipping a toe in the waters for the very first time. Could you just maybe speak to the person who's feeling discouraged? They're feeling underwater. They're feeling like they're coming unraveled a little bit. Could you just pastor our audience a little bit yeah. to close? Well, I think the church is... It, uh, the, the the world was created, uh, God created the world for the church, and the church is the ultimate expression, as I said, of God, of our meeting with God in the in the, in the end times, yeah. or the, the eschaton. Mm. Yeah. But it is a frustrating place. Mm. The thing I love about the church is the thing that makes me most irritated with it. It is, the, <laughs> it is a perfect laboratory of love, because oh, you good. have to learn to get along with people you really disagree with, and you have to learn to start to respect pastors who you think are kind of cockeyed, and you have to uh, wor- mm. sing worship songs with people who song- you don't like their taste in music. Yeah, right. And there is no better place to learn what it means to love God and love your neighbor than the local church. Amen. It's just mm-hmm. a tremendous laboratory for that, and that's one of the reasons. If you're discouraged, well, yeah. Yep, of course. We hear you. Your your spirit's being tested and your maturity is being called on. Sounds yeah. good. Thank you so much, Mark. This has been great. You've been listening uh, to Mark Galley. He is the uh, he's the editor-in-chief of Christianity Today. We can't encourage you enough to go online to ChristianityToday.com, and you can find the Elusive Present series that he so wrote. Good. So good. Also, I saw at the end you can subscribe. I believe it's called The Galley Report. You write a regular newsletter. Yep, it comes out on Friday. There Comment you- on articles that I link to. That's yes. wonderful. So we'd encourage you to do that. Mark, thanks again for joining us. We really appreciate Welcome. it. I'm happy to do it. Again, thanks. this is The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Here's some weird stuff we found on the internet. <clears throat> Here's some more weird stuff we found on the web. Well, that music can only mean one thing, and that is the end of the show, the landing of the plane, the docking of the boat, whatever it is you want. And that is just craziness that has been found on the internet. Trying to think of other metaphors. <laughs> Careful with them. The, the carmeling of the apple. The <laughs> carving of the pumpkin. The, it is mentee, by the way. Is it really? It is. Yeah. I would have gone with. I would have. I would have bet money on mentoree. Yeah, we know that now. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> See, this this show is all about learning for me. Look at us. It's learning for all of us. We're all on a journey, Brian. That's good. That's good. <laughs> Uh, if you don't know what Ian is talking about, you got to go all the way back to the end of the first hour. But we Sorry. finally figured it Sorry out. Sorry about that, everybody. Hey, we trust you people to be in for all two hours. You got to be invested <laughs> in this. So, as a reminder, Keith Conrad, our executive producer, he goes out and he find, he scours the internet for just crazy stories. <laughs> he goes out, goes out like forging in the woods, like a Disney movie, <laughs> going through the internet. We haven't seen him in weeks. <laughs> he's he's out, gathering. He's cares. out there in the World Wide Web right now. <laughs> 
<laughs> he finds these, and uh, like we uh, we like to say, these might be funny, they might be disturbing, but we're reading them as you're hearing them for the first time. Uh, so don't blame us. All right, ma'am, you're first. Okay, New York woman lies to cops about kid in stolen cars, so they'll find it quicker. Oh, no. <laughs> oh, gosh, that's terrible. Uh, Brooklyn woman whose idling car was allegedly swiped off the street Thursday lied to cops that her six-year-old nephew was inside, so they would try to find it faster, police and sources said. The 22-year-old woman told cops she'd left her 2008 Chrysler Pacifica running while she went into a store. Authorities said she told authorities that she returned and discovered her car missing. She then called 911 and claimed to the operator that her six-year-old nephew was inside. But when responding, cops found the vehicle 10 minutes later, just a few blocks away. There was no child, authorities said. Was that wrong? (laughs) Should I not have done that? Oh, boy. Australia. Police catch up with alleged bank robber after he gets stuck in traffic. Sure. A man has been arrested after allegedly robbing a bank with police catching up with him when his getaway car got stuck in traffic. Police claim the man went into a bank and passed a note to a staff member. He pointed at his waist to indicate he was armed and the staff member handed over an amount of cash before the man fled the bank, got into a green car and drove from the scene. Police quickly caught up with him on the highway where he was stuck in heavy traffic. (laughs) He surrendered and is charged with one count of armed robbery. Ooh, that's a new one. All right, England. uh, Man accidentally gives nurses thank you cake laced with cannabis. Mm. What's the the accidentally part here? (laughs) A red velvet cake caused quite the stir at a British hospital earlier this year when nurses ate it, not realizing it was laced with cannabis. According to the Manchester Evening News, the nurses were left off their faces and quite relaxed after eating it. A man brought the cake to thank the staff for the care they provided to the family member. However, he didn't realize the cake was intended for his grandson's 18th birthday party and had a little extra kick. What? Although hospital officials... (laughs) story's getting weirder. (laughs) Although hospital officials initially denied staff had eaten the cake, a staffer told the newspaper three or four nurses ate the cake and felt the effects. Stafford said the incident didn't have any impact on patients, but hospital officials called the police as a precaution. What are you people? On dope? (laughs) How surprising would that be? Police confirmed it was meant to be enjoyed at a teen's birthday party, but his grandfather brought it to the hospital as a gesture of kindness? The grandfather did. That's weird. England is crazy. England, speaking of crazy, Florida. Okay. Man posing as cop pulls over real deputy, tells him to slow down. Oh, boy. Another day, another... uh, I like how this starts. Another day, another outrageous Florida story. (laughs) This time, Hillsborough County Sheriff's Office said they arrested a man on July 4th who was pretending to be a cop and ended up pulling over a cop. According to Sheriff's Office, around 8.30 p.m., Barry Lee Hastings, 35, pulled behind an off-duty deputy and flashed his white and amber lights. After the real deputy pulled over, Hastings reportedly went to the vehicle and warned him to slow down. When the deputy asked for Hastings' credentials, Hastings reportedly told him that he left those back in the office and told the deputy to follow him back to the station so he could show them to him. The deputy then dialed 911 and Hastings drove off down I-4 eastbound before being stopped by a real deputy. Upon searching Hastings' vehicles, deputies said they found a functional siren box along with a citizen's band radio. (laughs) Hastings is charged with impersonating a public officer. Take that badge out of your mouth. You're police officers. (laughs) You know, my dad's friend actually did that once. Not only was posing as a cop pulling people over, but pulled over uh, an off-duty cop. Did he really? It's true. That seems like a bad move. Yeah, through and through. Totally agree. (laughs) All right, last but not least, Colorado. Colorado bear accidentally gets stuck in car, crashes it. 
Wait, what? No. Colorado police are reminding car owners to keep their vehicles locked at night after a bear accidentally sent a sedan rolling down a hill and crashing into a tree. <laughs> that is so alarming. The incident happened Thursday night when the animal pulled open an unlocked door, climbed in, and accidentally got shut inside. The bear tore apart the interior of the car, trying to get out, and in the frenzy, apparently shifted it into neutral. The car rolled back. And off the driveway and about 100 feet down the hill, the four-legged suspect swiped a tree, rendering the car undrivable, but in the process popped the door open and fled on foot or on pause in an unknown direction. I tried to get an interview with him. They said, nope, you can't do that. He's a live bear. He will literally rip your face off. (laughs) So good. Oh, good job, Keith. That is the end of, I don't know, I feel like we did okay for a Monday after a holiday weekend. I, I mean, are you always just wanting words of, up. words of affirmation? Two thumbs up. Just giving yourself accolades. I am now looking in the mirror and just affirming myself. There you go, Brian. Anyway, we're glad that you joined us today on this Monday. For Ian Simpkins, my name is Brian Fromm. This has been The Common Good on AM 1160. Hope for your life. Star General Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.